Welcome to the Product Podcast, brought to you by Product School. Here, you'll get fresh insight from the people at the very top of the tech companies who make the products we love. Remember, you can learn product management live online. Visit productschool.com to discover our new certificate path. There, you can also join the world's largest community of PMs and network with the leaders from these podcasts at our online events. There's something happening almost every day. Hey, everyone. This is Carlos, founder and CEO at Product School. I'm here with special guest Edith Harbaugh, who is the CEO at Launch Darkly. Edith, I can't imagine the reason behind the name of your company, but I'm sure you can explain it better than me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here today. Cool. Well, let's start from the very beginning. I love having CEOs on stage, especially if they're building product for product people. Uh, so I, I've been using your product. I know the pain of like launching in the dark, but why don't you tell us a little more about what, what, what you do? Uh, yeah, so Launch Darkly, it's the name came out of this idea of a dark launch. Uh, it's the idea that you can push different features out to different consumers, businesses, users of your software, and then gradually light it up for them over time. So for example, if you wanted to launch to people in New Jersey first and then New York, you have a framework that you could do that. Um, what we found is that it's not just for launches. Uh, people also use Launch Darkly for long-term control. Uh, so again, for my example about New York and New Jersey, you could say actually New York and New Jersey are very different markets. Maybe they have different regulations. And I want to have a long-term way to control that so that they just have a different experience. A really common uh, product use case is if you want to have a beginner in an advanced mode and uh, gate based on that. I remember those type of capabilities were only accessible to large organizations back in the day. Like I remember Facebook talking about controlled rollouts and how they could test certain new features with a very specific part of the market before they go to everybody. And now we can see tools that enable companies of all sizes to really get access to, to those capabilities without really having to hire dedicated resources. Yeah, I mean, um, we didn't invent dark launches. You know, the smart people at Facebook, Amazon, Google have been doing this for, you know, 10 years, 15 years now. Um, what LaunchDarkly does is give that framework to everybody. So that even if you're a small startup of like 10, 20 people, you can still have the same functionality to do quick rollouts and uh, turn stuff on and off, even if you're not at Facebook or Google scale. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's talk about, about you, because obviously you are the CEO of Darkly, which is a, a rocket ship. But before that, I saw you have, a, you have experience working in product. You've been a, a content writer. You've been a software engineer. So kind of like, what is the story behind the scenes? Yeah, so I started off as a software analyst and a designer, basically designing big systems for deploying sites. I actually got a couple of patents off of that about moving stuff between uh, developer box, testing, staging, production. Uh, I got really frustrated with my product manager, to be honest. I was like, this looks so easy. Why should I be the product manager? And so I became a product manager to, to, you know, kind of from a lot of hubris. And then I discovered that product management is actually really hard. You know, when I was in engineering, I kind of just saw, hey, this is my view of the world. Uh, as a manager, you have to see not only the view of the entire world, but also your future customers and what they might want. Uh, so I have a lot more sympathy now for product managers. Uh, I also found that I really enjoyed being a product manager. 
Like there's nothing better than building something and having people really enjoy it. You know, that's, that, that's honestly why I moved from engineering to product manager is that I wanted to, as an engineer, I kept getting frustrated that we build stuff that nobody used, you know, cause you like poured months, years sometimes into a feature and then you get it out to the world and it's like, nobody cares. Totally. I come from an engineering background and I remember back in the day thinking, why are these business people coming to my room telling me what to do if they don't know how to do it? You know, <laughs> now obviously I'm one of those and I develop much more empathy for everyone, including engineers, because this is a, a team sport. Like we are seeing more and more PMs or product leaders that turn into, into, into CEOs. So for you, how was that transition? Um, so the one of the rubrics of the product manager is that you're supposed to be the CEO of your uh, of your product, basically. Like you're trying to drive revenue, you're trying to drive usage, you're trying to drive adoption. Um, so it's kind of a natural leap. Um, I'd been responsible before for the business metrics. Again, um, I was at TripIt where I was responsible for uh, their premium products. So it was a natural leap to okay, I'm not just responsible for my own product, but for the overall company. I love that answer because it keeps it simple. And then, you know, sometimes you don't have to overthink it. Like, I think there's a lot of overlap between building for yourself, building for somebody, especially at the, at the beginning. And, and, and I think it's encouraging to see more product people out there, regardless of their title, that are having uh, leadership positions in the organizations. Because we're seeing now, now more companies being product-led with product having a seat and not just being as a function of marketing or engineering. I think they work with those groups. I think, you know, I mean, you know, every great org has a robust marketing organization that helps uh, bring in new ideas about what the market wants as well as evangelize. And of course you need a, a strong engineering team. So, so you, you need that. Totally. You know, my, my point was more about, I can remember when I was in, in the engineering team, product was a sub-function. Like it used to report, the highest ranked product person would report to the CTO or in some cases to the CMO. Now we're seeing the role of the CPO, chief product officer, which is, sits at the table. It's at the same level as the other executives. And in many cases, the CEO, like, like yourself, you come from a product background. And I think that's ultimately a validation for how important building the right product is for the entire organization. Yep, absolutely. Cool. So what are, what do you think are, you know, in addition to obviously having a technical background and then jumping in and, and trying to figure out the, the business side and, and talking with customers, what would you say are like some of those key moments that really help you grow as a, as a CEO, as a, as a leader and, and take your company from just a product to, an, to, to be a company really? I think the hallmark of a good product manager is a lot of hubris. And sorry, a, la a lack of hubris. Um, I think when I thought, when I was an engineer, I thought the product manager's job was just to decide what to do. Like they went into, you know, a room somewhere and just decided it. A good product manager actually does a ton of listening. Like they go in and they listen to customers. They listen to what the customers don't like. They talk to prospective customers about what a prospective customer wants. And you listen. It's not just like the, the myth of like a Steve Jobs that just like pulls idea out of thin air and makes them happen. It's listening. So I think that's that's the key also to building a, a good company is a lot of listening. And I'll add um, listening, not just to your customers, but also to your team. You know, so listening to the, the team about how to build a strong 
company. Yeah, that, that's a good point because there is no class for listening. And, and actually, this is definitely one of the mistakes. I mean, I, sp I speak too much. <laughs> and <laughs> shutting up on time and really using two ears instead of one mouth sometimes can go a long way. Yeah. It, it's funny. I thought um, I, I did all the early sales and it was surprisingly easy if I thought about it like I'm, I'm a product manager. Like what I would do is like, I would ask the customer a lot of questions about what they wanted and like try to find a match between what we had, which is just a lot, a lot of listing. So now that companies in a much bigger stage and you probably had to reinvent your own job description, like how do you work with your product team? Because now you're not the only product person in the room. Yeah, actually um, my, my co-founder, uh, the CTO, he actually runs a product org. Um, so product reports into him and they have a triad model where uh, they have engineering product and designer on every product uh, uh, product feature. And it's an incredibly powerful combination because uh, you're always thinking about, you know, what are we building? How does it work? And can we build it as a unit? Got it. And um, is there anything that you still do today that doesn't scale, but it's so core to your to your values that, that you want to be involved? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I still make a lot of my own graphs. I find Excel very soothing. Um, so sometimes I'll just get a data dump of like uh, customer, customer patterns and I'll analyze it myself. And that's just because I, I find it really powerful to actually look at trends and to do that. Like, um, I was looking at the growth of different customer segments. And though we have a whole data analyst team that does do that, sometimes I like just doing it myself um, just so that I truly understand the numbers. You know, I'm fascinated by this concept called a zone of genius, which is basically identifying what is it that you love and also that you do really, really well, better than nobody else. And how as a CEO, as the company evolves, it's important to double down on that and also delegate the other areas. So this question that I ask, it's it depends like the answers I get are very, very different. And and it seems like they all make sense, right? It's just about like what you think it's critical for the business that you do really well and you want to keep a finger on the pulse. Yeah. Another thing I do is um I still try to blog. I know other CEOs just have ghostwriters. Um the dirty secret is that even uh some of the LinkedIn posts that you see are ghostwritten. Um, if I, if something is under my name, I wrote it, I get help with copy editing. I get help with feedback about shape of it, but I wrote it. That's great. I see that you were a, a contributor to, um, read, right before. Yes. And you also have a podcast. Yeah. The, I have a podcast called to be continuous. Uh, we talk about software delivery it's pretty fun. I do it with the founder of circle CI. Um, it came about cause we just, we love talking about software. <laughs> so finally we're like, why don't we just tape this? And it's, it's, it's very unstructured, which people either love or hate. Cause it's literally just us talking about software. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I, th I look at, uh, we are here on a podcast, you know, when I started this company, I would never imagine that I would become a podcast host <laughs> among other things, but I love it. And I, that's kind of my. My thing, the, the thing that I do that doesn't scale is, is this because I love spending time with other product leaders and 
I'm also learning. This is an opportunity for me to know really what's going on out there. And hopefully this is useful to many other people listening. So yeah, I see the value in the CEO or one of the executive members to really represent the company because as the companies get big, they, they could lose identity. And at the end of the day, we are all buying or selling and it's a people business. And I try to give the perspective of, okay, the human behind the scenes, like what's really happening at launch directly by the, the CEO. And that's something that you can probably read on the website. So let's talk about um, some of the best practices that um, you think that people, product teams can use to, to take advantage of your product. Because we mentioned how easier it is these days to be able to do a controlled rollout of a certain feature, but still for people who've never seen it before, this may be like a big deal. So, you know, let's say there's a whole product team here. They don't want to build, they don't want to create their own, you know, reinvent the wheel. They want to leverage a tool like LaunchDarkly. How can they incorporate that as part of their product development process? Yeah. So we have thousands of customers all over the world. Um, we have customers that are already using some sort of homegrown feature flagging framework. We also have uh, customers who it's brand new to. Um, if, it, if you're brand new to it, the easiest thing is just kind of this mind shift of breaking down a feature into what do I need to get out to get some sort of learning or value from it. Um, so then working with the engineering team and the designer team so that you basically have something that's easily encapsulated. Uh, a pushback I usually hear then is like, well, I need to have all these features all together to, to have impact. Um, that's actually extremely risky. You know, if you have like 20 features that are all going out at the same time, that's actually kind of a nightmare in terms of what if one goes wrong. So really encouraging product managers to, again, break down functionality into a chunk of value. Um, don't break it down into too small of a chunk because then it's like, uh, well, nobody even notices it. Um, and then think about how you want to roll it out. Like, do you want to roll it out just again to like a couple early adopters uh, who are going to give you really friendly feedback? Uh, so like, which was a pattern we used a lot at TripIt. Uh, so I was a product director at TripIt. I had like 10 frequent travelers who loved getting new features. And they would also be very frank about stuff they didn't like. Um, so it was a two-way exchange. I'm like, you get the new feature, but in, in return, you have to give me all the harsh feedback. Um, so identify that early beta group. And then you can do stuff like uh, you can do a percentage rollout, or if you just are more worried about it breaking at scale. Again, at TripIt, we had millions of users. So you could push out to like 100,000, 200,000. And then, of course, if something is not going well, roll it back. So that, that, that's kind of the, the launch sequence. The other really nice thing is it alleviates a lot of pressure. Um, we talked before about the name Dark Launch. Uh, I used to hate launch day. I would always have this pit in my stomach, you know, like what's going to happen. If your features are, as I said before, encapsulated such that you could push them out anytime, it just relieves so much anxiety, as well as that you can off. Like, so if something is just a total dud in the field, which face it sometimes happens, it's really a relief that you could just say, just turn it off. Um, I'd say the final thing, and I, I learned this over and over again, is you gotta get in the habit of shipping. Uh, 
Like if every release is nerve wracking, it's kind of paralyzing and it actually builds up all this cruft uh, in the pre-release process where everybody's nervous about what's gonna happen. So then releases get more and more stressful and further and further apart. And then you're actually not doing a good job as a product manager because you're not producing features. Sorry, that was a lot. Uh, I, I love talking about this. No, and I think it's helpful to hear you talk about this because normalizing launch, realizing that this is not like an all or nothing type of game and that this can be more of a continuous process where you're constantly learning instead of betting everything all in. And if it hits the jackpot, great, you win. If not, oh my God, we have to roll everything back. I think just creating this type of agile mindset is, is really important. And one thing that I was, as you were talking, I was thinking, in general, I've seen a lot of PMs trying to be biased towards validating their hypothesis. Like, this can happen with a feature rollout. This can happen with an A-B test. In general, when you have multiple options, intrinsically, the person who's running the experiment probably has a winner in mind. And I think it's a common pitfall to try to use the experiment to validate your own hypothesis. And I think approaching this with an open mind to try to invalidate your own hypothesis and truly play by the rules <laughs> instead of creating your own rules can, can democratize you know, access to information and really picking the ideas or the features that the users want, not the ones that the PM or the CEO wants. Yeah, <laughs> again, um, the, the joke is the CEO is sometimes the worst at picking the features. I mean. Um, you know, I have opinions like anybody else, but, uh, you know, there's a, that's why we also have a, a team of product managers. Isn't it amazing when the, the, the team or the, or the users prove you wrong? Yes, it is good when they prove you wrong in a controlled way where, where you didn't waste 18 months on it. Um, <laughs> like I remember at an old job, there's nothing more frustrating than, like I said, spending 18 months having you and your engineers stay late have all these hopes and dreams, and then just having something completely flop. It's just really painful. But it, again, if you break stuff down into smaller and smaller features, you just get, my, 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 my thing is that you just get more at bats. You get more chances. Yeah. It becomes more like a game where you know you're not always going to win. It's just part of the process. And, and I think it, it re releases a lot of pressure from, from the PMs and the engineers. Yeah. Of course, you still want to make sure that you're doing meaningful work. I mean, you're not just like, pushing out crud, but you want to you want to make sure that you're not putting too much into any one release. So for, let's say, best-in-class product teams that are really taking advantage of, of products like LaunchDarkly, what is like their cadence of like shipping new stuff? Yeah. So uh, Intuit is a customer, and one of their quotes is, speed is a habit, which I like. Um, a really interesting thing that people have is that with LaunchDarkly, you can push features out multiple times a day or an hour, but you can also batch them up because sometimes your customers don't want that many features all, uh, you know, every day. Like for example, if you're in a baking app, you don't want to log in every day and have something switched around. Um, so the development team can push out features and then again, enable them for different users in a staged way so that they're the cadence of the development team is not faster than the cadence of the needs of the customers. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it, I mean, it does for me. Um, I mean, it's, it's basically the way I see this, it's, it's now a, a team. Back in the day, 
it was basically the engineers working on something that nobody could understand and they would press a button and magically it appears on everybody's websites. And now I think people are part of the process and they can have an input there. Product, marketing, the user, and, and it's, it's a continuous process. So yes, we can all have our hypotheses, and, but we can also move on. We don't need to get full consensus and then wait for another cycle before we launch something else. Yeah. You could de- the way I look at it is you could decouple deployment and release. Um, another really common use case is we have uh, educational software like Seesaw um, uses us. And if you're in a classroom teaching a bunch of kids, you don't want a new release to update right then. So what they could do is have the developers deploy and have features ready. And then at the right time for the teachers, they can turn them on. So this whole use case, I would, I would say, has evolved a lot. I remember early days, it was all about A-B testing. And I, I remember, like, oh my God, when, when I found out that as a non-technical person, I would be able to create different variations, maybe change the copy, the color, or size of certain elements, and measure uh, the performance of the user. Now we see an entire new platform with A-B testing as a feature, but obviously there are many more complicated use cases, feature rollouts being one of them. How do you see the, the future of experimentation and feature management evolving? It's interesting. We originally thought people would experiment a lot more with LaunchDarkly. Uh, we, we have experiment, we, you can do experiments with us. What it turned out is people really use us a lot more for is control. Like, so for example, to go back to the classroom situation, the, the teachers actually want to know what software they're going to get. Um, same with an airline. So it's more about pushing it out to the right person at the right time rather than running like a mass A-B experiment on banks. Same with um, restaurant brands. Uh, we have a lot of restaurants who use us. Uh, they want to know that like all their franchises in Texas are getting the right software at the right time. And if the promotion is not available in Oklahoma, Oklahoma doesn't get it. So it's not really a test so much as just control. Um, we do have experiments and people do do really fun things with them. But the thing that's really taken off for us is just more of that long-term control. Got it. And what is kind of the future for this? I, I've seen companies focusing on personalization, for example, and making sure that you can really deliver a very custom experience, not just at the city level, but at the individual level. Yeah. So there, there's two dimensions on that one. Uh, people use us not just for launches, but for long-term control. Uh, again, you know, so we have a, like we have a car manufacturer that has different functionality in Germany versus Canada, but a common code base because they don't want to have 130 different branches for every country they're president. Uh, so they use uh, launch sharply as just this long-term, uh, control level. Another thing that we see a lot of our customers wanting more of is workflow control. Um, so for example, it used to be that only an engineer could turn a feature on and off. What is really liberating is if they could say the product manager does that. Like I built it. I trust the product manager to turn it on. And by the way, so I can turn it off and get all the feedback, but really liberating that capability out to product management and then to marketing and then even to sales. You know, if a salesperson is out in the field and they want to turn on a new feature for a customer and then having workflow around that. So one of the things that I'm always um, curious to ask is, uh, what are you learning these days? What are you excited about? Yes, 
getting better at? You know, I would continually learn from our customers. You know, I, uh, I love hearing our customer stories. They're really pushing the boundaries about what can be controlled. Uh, we have hardware customers, we have car manufacturers. They just have such cool use cases. Um, some of them are on our, on our website, but just how feature management has really changed their own lives. Um, and they say not just their lives at, at work, but uh, a, a big benefit of LaunchDarkly is that the old way of running release was very stressful. I, I touched on this earlier because you would push out all this code and if something went wrong, you had to roll it back. Um, with LaunchDarkly, if something goes wrong, you just turn off that feature. Uh, you can even have an automated way to turn that feature off. So the thing I've learned is just how much relief that brings into our customers' lives. Like they just say, like, this is just uh, increase the peace. You know, like I don't have to worry about my, my weekend getting snatched away because there's a bug that I don't know about. If there's a bug that I don't know about, I just turn that off. So I've, I've learned that less stressful software releases can change people's lives. Got it. And is there anything particular like you are now currently learning or like thinking about, okay, it doesn't need to be just about work, but in general, I, I found that a lot of the leaders that we've had on the host, they are also learning something, reading a book, practicing sport, like doing whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. Um, with the pandemic, I really got into board games a lot more. Um, before, you know, I would think I don't have time to do a four-hour board game. Uh, suddenly, I had time to do a four-hour board game. So <laughs> I really got into a lot of... Uh, I had played board games kind of casually before, but I did get a lot more into them. Nice. Well, I've never got that answer before. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, my, my last question to you is, is about the audience. We have a lot of product managers listening and thinking, hey, like I want to continue growing in my career. I want to become a product leader, eventually a CEO. What is that something that you'd say to your younger self to hopefully get to where you are today faster? Oh, just keep learning. You know, when I became a product manager, uh, there's a ton of good books out now, like, uh, you know, on Lean Startup or customer development. You know, I love Steve Blank's uh, The Four Steps of the Customer Epiphany. Um, I always have a book I'm reading. Uh, what, what really helped me in my own journey was I started getting a lot more into sales books. Um, you know, as a product manager, you're always pitching your product ideas. Uh, but I had to take it to the next level when I started fundraising for the company. Uh, so I, I read books like Pitch Anything or Positioning the Battle for Your Mind that just helped me get out of I just need to build it and more into I not only need to build this, but I need to position it and broadcast it. I don't know who, who said this quote about build it and they will come because it's not true at all. You have to build it and go out there. <laughs> I, I, I look back at my younger self sometimes and I cringe. Um, I was an engineer and I, I remember I was like, I looked across the floor at all the marketing people and I'm like, why do we need marketing? The product speaks for itself. And like, huge mistake. Like the product, even if it's the most amazing product in the world, which by the way, I think Lunch Berkeley is, you still need to tell people that. Like nobody wakes up and says, you know, what I'm going to do today is read the release notes of Lunch Berkeley and figure out their cool new features. Like... Right. I agree with you. Well, thank you so much for your time, Edith. It's been a pleasure to learn with you. Yeah, it was really fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Product Podcast. 
If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. For more product insights, head over to productschool.com.